Welcome to the teaching ministry of Faith Bible Church. We pray as you listen to the following message, you will be encouraged and equipped to passionately pursue Christ. For more information, please visit our website at fbcevansville.com. The goal of our instruction, as surprising as it may sound coming from me, Bible doctrine taught for its sake alone can be dull and meaningless. Truth divorced from life is not truth in a biblical sense. Something else and something less it is, but it is not biblical truth. The Bible is divine revelation that could not be discovered by the most brilliant minds. God designed his word to persuade and enable us to change our ways and live in harmony with his will. Many, including myself, before I was saved, could cite and even defend solid biblical doctrine. However, theological truth is useless unless it's obeyed. The purpose behind all doctrine is to secure moral action. Truth engages the citadel of the human heart and is not satisfied until it has conquered everything there. Bible exposition without moral application raises no opposition. A.W. Tozer wrote, application, uh, exposition without application is worthless. And I believe that that's a sound statement. Only when the hearer is fully engaged and understands that truth is in conflict with his heart, then is the battle engaged. Orthodox truth, divorced from life, is a lovely siren that can be made into entertainment. Well, is it the lack of the Spirit's illumination? Is it possible that the teacher maybe is unwilling to get into trouble? Well, whatever the cause behind the lack of impact, here at Faith Bible Church, the goal of our instruction is summed up in 1 Timothy 1.5. The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. So, while a good sense of the good content of the good book is a valued set of truths, our desire, our aim, our prayer, our sweat, blood, and tears are all directed to the word of life impacting our lives, compelling us to be radically transformed gospel-drenched, progressively sanctified men and women growing in conformity to our Lord and able to dive into the divine treasure and not only for the sake of our comfort, pleasure, and growth, but also so that we would be used in the lives of our families, neighbors, co-workers, and fellow saints. We're going to be diving into First Corinthians, uh, First Chronicles, the Mosaic and Davidic Covenants, the story of Jerusalem. And every time we open one of these books, we're going to be asking this question for you to answer at the end of our brief survey. And the question is this, what are the practical implications and principles we get from this book? So as we look at First and Second Chronicles, I'm going to ask you, as we go through, think about what practical applications, what godly principles will be meaningful in our lives, because again, it is not just a set of facts. So, the author. The author of First and Second Chronicles and Ezra is Ezra. Probably one book or a series of books, he had access to journals, diaries, and public records that have been lost. As a matter of fact, if you look at the content, Moses wrote about 20% of the Bible. Paul wrote the most number of individual letters or books at 13. But Ezra, in terms of the word count, is the third highest author of scriptures. 
he used approximately 11 different sources that we do not have today. And as you go through First and Second Chronicles, you'll find things like the annals of King David, the records of Samuel the seer, the records of Nathan the prophet. It'll be interesting if one day we find those extra canonical books. But Ezra uses those, and you'll also find that this narrative in First and Second Chronicles is repeated in some of Samuel and Kings. Now, what's the purpose of that? Well, the purpose is basically this. In First and Second Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, and Esther, you are telling the story of a number of people that are coming back after the Babylonian, after the Persian Empire has held these people captive. And so we are re-educating those that are coming back. And that's the purpose. So there's necessary repetition. I don't know about you. I'm trying to remember and memorize Romans 8 this year. I have to repeat it to myself a lot of times. And if you've ever attempted memorization, you know repetition is key. All good teachers know that. Well, what are the key verses of First and Second Chronicles? First one is First Chronicles 17, verse 12, where God promises to David that his son Solomon will build a house. And that house will not just be a physical structure, but God will establish the throne of Solomon, the throne of David forever. First Chronicles 16, 8 through 10 is a celebration of the ark coming back into Jerusalem after it's kept being captive. In 1 Chronicles 22 and verse 13, there's a promise to David concerning the temple. You will have success if you are careful to observe the decrees and the laws that the Lord, Lord gave Moses for Israel. This is a promise David is communicating to his son. Another one in 1 Chronicles 28:30, David also said to Solomon his son, be strong and courageous and do the work. Do not be afraid or discouraged. Great promises. And then another wonderful promise that you all are very familiar with is First, uh, Second Chronicles chapter 7 and verse 14. There we are. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven forgive their sin, and heal their land. God's warning to Solomon about chastening and still the remnant and remember of God in his forgiving and faithful grace. And then one last one that I want to call to your mind is Second Chronicles chapter 34, 24 through 25. And Josiah, a righteous king, finds the law and is appalled by what he read. God confirms that he is going to judge the nation for their idolatry, but grants that Josiah will not see it. And God says, behold, I am bringing evil on this place. Well, what is the role and importance of First and Second Chronicles? What if you had the job of communicating a nation's entire history, rulers, religious events, economic cycles, starting with the beginning of mankind? First and Second Chronicles is that history for Israel and especially for the southern kingdom. First and Second Chronicles is an executive summary of God's covenant with David and how things played out afterwards. So you have the Mosaic Covenant, which God made with all Israel, delivering them from Egypt. 
And you have the Davidic covenant, which God made to David. David planned to build a house for God, but God instead promises to establish David's family on the throne forever. God is faithful to that promise, even when the northern tribes defect. God keeps David's line on the throne in Jerusalem. And of course, that Davidic covenant is later fulfilled in who? Jesus Christ, right? The Chronicles focus then on those two themes, God's covenant with David and the temple throughout the Davidic covenant. So we're going to go through a quick outline of 1st and 2nd Chronicles in four major acts. I do encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, open that up. Let's go through. You'll have a chance to tell me in advance if the next king is wicked, good, or mixed. So in the first few chapters, chapters 1 through 9, there's a genealogy from Adam through and including David. The immediate purpose of these genealogies concerns the resettling of the land. People need to know that they are descendants and actually own the plot of land that they are going to reclaim. In addition, there's a need for the Levitical priest line to also be established and understood. So you have that. Number two, you have David's ruling and uniting of Israel, chapters 10 through 29. He was a good king who followed God. Obviously, he was not perfect. He united the house of Israel delivered the nation from her enemies, and God makes an everlasting covenant with David, a man after his own heart. His son Solomon's throne will be established forever. So First Chronicles, we might say, is a sort of historical sermon designed to encourage the returned exiles in the work of restoring the temple worship in its proper place in national life. So, archaeologic note. In this section of God's Word, there are two parts that archaeologists have found which confirm the biblical record. First is the watercourse that you see pictured here in the upper left-hand corner by which Joab and David's men gained entrance to Jerusalem. It was discovered in 1998. It verifies the Bible's description of the underground secret passageway that these men went through to get water to satisfy David's desire. Also, you'll see in this picture in the bottom right-hand corner, a five-story tall stepstone structure that was discovered in the 1980s. This is the site of the Jebusite citadel that was captured by David as recorded in his word. Moving on, 1 Chronicles chapter 13 through 16, the ark is brought back to Israel. Turn the page, you'll see in 1 Chronicles 17, David's plan to build a temple. 18 through 20, his victories... First Chronicles 21, what happens there? You see it, you have a heading on top of your Bible. What does it say there for that chapter? David does what? He numbers the people. Foolishly numbers the people outside of God's design and plan. We don't know exactly the motives, but God judges for him, uh, judges him, and there are 70,000 people that die in that counting. Wow. 70,000 people that die in the counting. First Chronicles 21. Well, 22 picks back up with David's preparation for the temple. 23 is the duties of the Levites. And 24 through 25, the organization of the priests and Levites. The priests were divided into 24 divisions for service in the sanctuary. Some Levites were musicians. David was a great musician who even invented 
new instruments to go along with his many songs. First Chronicles 27, military, civil, and court leaders were appointed. First Chronicles 28 and 29 brings David's reign to an end as he gives a final word and prayer. This is what his heart was on as his soul took its flight to the house made without hands. The man after God's own heart had served his generation nobly. What a joy it must have been when he met him who later bore the title Son of David. And now we enter into Second Chronicles. We enter into Second Chronicles, where Solomon builds a temple and we see his glorious reign in chapters 1 through 9. From Jerusalem to Babylon follows in chapters 10 through 36, and we see the beginning of the reign of kings. So, 2 Chronicles 10 through 12 is Rehoboam. Was Rehoboam a good or a wicked king? He was wicked. He divided the kingdom. An archaeological note you see here in the upper left-hand corner, Shishak's own record of sacking Jerusalem is confirmed on the south wall of the great temple of Ammon in Karnak. Again, the Bible is embedded in history and can be verified as differentiated from all of the sacred writings throughout history. In 2 Chronicles chapter 13, Abijah reigns for a short while, three years. Is he good or bad? He's wicked. He's wicked. <clears throat> How about 2 Chronicles chapter 14 through 16? Asa, he reigned for 41 years, which is a clue, good or bad? Good, excellent. Yep, reigned for 41 years, served the Lord with great zeal, broke down foreign altars, high places, pillars or sacred stones, sun images, and Asherah poles. He even removed his mother as queen because she worshipped an idol. What a brave man. Next king, great jumping Jehoshaphat. Chapters 17 through 20, good or bad? He was a good king, 25 years. He sought the Lord in all things, inaugurated public instruction by priests and Levites. Next king, chapter 21, Jehoram or Joram, good or bad? It's about time for a bad one. <laughs> wicked. He was a wicked king. Only eight years, and he was ruined by his marriage to a wicked woman, Athaliah, who is daughter of who? The wicked and evil Jezebel. You got it. The prophet Elijah confronted him. He killed his brothers and others, and Jerusalem was plundered by the Arabs and Philistines. Second Chronicles 22, Azariah reigned one year, which gives you a clue that he was... He was bad. Um, he was killed by Yehu, who drove like a maniac. Yehu, J-E-H-U. Yehu. He drove like, drove like a maniac. Look it up. Second Chronicles 22 continues with Athaliah, who is a queen, 15 years daughter of the wicked woman, which gives you a clue that she was wicked. She was fanatically devoted to Baalism, she massacred her own grandchildren, except one that we'll hear about in a moment. <laughs> Josiah, chapter 24. He was good or bad? He started out good, but then he became bad. He was mentored by his uncle, a righteous 
man, a righteous priest who saved him from the evil wicked queen prior to that. But then when his uncle died, he became bad. Josiah was good. The little white boxes in the back that we use for offering, I call them the Joash chests because Joash put chests so people could put money in to rebuild the temple. So next time you hear me talk about the Joash chest, that's what it is. Jack, Second Chronicles chapter 25, Amaziah, good, bad, or mixed? He was kind of mixed. Reigned for 29 years, he did right, but ended up worshiping the God of the Edomites. It's not just a cheese, it was a people. Chapter 26, Uzziah or Azariah, good, bad, or mixed? Mixed, 20, 52 years, he did what was right, set himself to seek God, but he became arrogant, God afflicted him with leprosy. As a matter of fact, there is a little square in the upper right-hand corner of this uh, video, uh, this uh, display that you have, and that is a little plaque that was put on his tomb outside of the kings of Judah tombs. He became a leper and could not be buried there. So this is inside of a Russian monastery on the Mount of Olives. It's a limestone plaque. Hither was brought the bones of Uzziah, king of Judah, not to be opened. Could somebody please cue the theme? Yeah, exactly. You know where I'm going with that. Second Chronicles 27. Jotham, he reigned for 16 years. Good or bad? He was good. He reigned for 16 years, became mighty because he did what was right in his eyes of the Lord, as his father Uzziah had done originally. Now, there is another uh, archaeologic find. You'll see that in the right-hand side and right uh, external, externality there. There's a seal that's been found at the excavations, and it's inscribed belonging to Jotham. Again, a verification of the biblical record. Next is wicked king Ahaz, chapter 28. 16 years, he reintroduced Baal worship, revived Moloch worship, burnt his own sons in the fire. Second Chronicles chapter 9, uh, 29 through 32, one of my favorite kings, Hezekiah. He was a good king. 29 years, great reformation, destroyed idols, cleansed the temple, restored worship. The prophet Isaiah was his advisor. Now, he was not always wise. He did some foolish things. He showed the treasures of his house in Jerusalem. And God chastened him, but God gave him more time. Now, interestingly enough, in the bottom right-hand corner of this uh, screen that you see, there is a tiny ivory pomegranate on a seal which pronounces the name of the Judaic king Hezekiah. And then, in that same context, <clears throat> Sennacherib was a main character. And in the center on the bottom, you see a relief showing Sennacherib's attack on Lachish. And that confirmed that the record in the scripture is true. And then in the bottom left-hand corner of this slide, you'll see an archaeologic uh, remnant that describes the tunnel by which Hezekiah brought water into the city. It was found in 1880 by some schoolboys at the entrance to this tunnel. What other famous artifact was found by a young man? The Dead Sea Scrolls, exactly. He was throwing a rock into a cave. He heard something break, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. 
when we were in Houston recently, we went to a theological library and we saw parts of the jars that were in that cave. And we saw fragments of what was in there. It was exciting. All right, also on this slide, you'll see on the left-hand side in the middle there, there is a stele, a small 18-inch piece of pottery, uh, which records Sennacherib's invasion of Judah, and it mentions Hezekiah. By the way, it doesn't mention that God defeated Sennacherib, which is pretty common in the pagan records. They don't always record their own defeats. And then, again, in the middle there, you see an extra-biblical text, which documents the tribute that Sennacherib was paid by Hezekiah. Well, let's keep going. Turn your pages to 2 Chronicles chapter 33, and you'll see Manasseh. He burnt his own children in the fire. He rebuilt idols and reestablished Baal worship, which means that he was, he was wicked. Chapter 33, 21 through 25, he only reigned two years, Amnon, and so he was probably wicked. 2 Chronicles 34 through 35, Josiah, a good king, he began his reign when he was how old? Eight years old. Wow. At 16, he sought after the God of David, and he began his reforms when he was 20. Josiah's reforms were delayed, uh, delayed but could not avert the fast-approaching doom of Judah. In chapters 36, 1 through 4, uh, Jehoaz, he was wicked, only reigned for three months, and deposed by Pharaoh, taken Egypt, where he died. Chapter 36, 5 through 8, Jehoiakim. He reigned for 11 years, but he was subdued by and served Babylon three years. He was so wicked that God's judgment on him included that he was killed and received the burial of a donkey, having been dragged away and thrown outside the gates of Jerusalem. Wow. Conceited, hard-hearted, wicked, he repeatedly tried to kill the prophet Jeremiah. Jehoiakim. Next king in chapter 36, 8 through 10, only three months, wicked man. And then finally Zedekiah, 11 years, and then the people of Judah were taken away to Babylonia in what is known as the Babylonian captivity or the Babylonian exile. That was the apparent end of David's physical kingdom. Well, one of the key notes in Second Chronicles, of course, is the temple. Now, I have on your notes there a description of the seven different temples that are mentioned in the scripture. We don't have time to dive into that today, but I would encourage you, take a look at that. Notice the differences between the various temples that are described in the scripture. So, I said I would ask the question, which is this, what are the practical life implications and principles that we got from the study of First and Second Chronicles? Not just, not just notes, not just facts. What lessons does God intend for us to learn, to know, to practice, to apply from First and Second Chronicles? You'll have to speak up. I didn't bring my hearing aids. We don't need earthly kings. Say it again, please, Adam. We don't need an earthly king. We don't need an earthly king. We need to follow the king of kings. Okay? What else? A little louder. And 
Excellent. Yep. Obedience to God is crucial, and he does not take disobedience lightly. What else? How about our attention to God's sovereign purposes in Christ? Even though through all of the war, all of the economics ups and downs, God is sovereign. He's continuing his promises. He equips his people to persevere. First, the chronicler reminds them to focus on God's promises and learn from the past how to endure amidst a sinful world. The importance of godly leadership. Well, let's go through the Babylonian uh, exile quickly, shall we? As we look at the next phase, this is the Babylonian exile, period of time under Zerubbabel, Ezra, and Nehemiah. Uh, We have the exile beginning at 586 B.C. with the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonians in 586. The people of God entered the exilic phase. The return begins 538 458 and 444 B.C. 538 is Zerubbabel, who had the temple rebuilt under Governor Zerubbabel with Joshua the priest. Ah, looks like I went ahead, didn't I? Yep, looks like I went ahead. There we are. Yeah, we're great. Uh, Nehemiah in, uh, excuse me, Ezra in 458. He was a priest that taught God's law and was appointed by a godless king to teach the returning Jews. 444 B.C., Nehemiah. He's the governor, and he goes to rebuild and fortify Jerusalem at the government expense. Ezra is the priest, and the prophet is Malachi. Then you get into the post-exilic period from 538 to 400 B.C. The prophetic voice ceases from the last of Israel's prophets, and a majority of Jews living outside of the Promised Land did not return to Judah. Usually life in exile was not too bad, but on occasion the Jews were persecuted. Many Jews, both in and out of the land of Judah, adopted the Aramaic language, which of course is used in some of our scriptures. And the Persian kings were rather solid that at that time, and I think I have them listed down there for you. You had five Persian kings, Cyrus, who conquered Babylon and made Persia a world empire, permitted Jews to return, Chemesis, who was thought to have been the Artaxerxes who stopped work on the temple, Darius I, who authorized completion of the temple, Xerxes, who was famous for his wars with Greece, and Esther became his wife. Then Artaxerxes was favorably deposed toward the Jews and authorized Nehemiah to rebuild. And then, after that, the Persian Empire ended almost a century after the time of Artaxerxes. Well, let's go on to our next book, shall we? Esther, the deliverance of the Jews from annihilation. And again, I'm going to ask you to consider as we go through this survey, what are the practical life implications and principles we get from Esther? Who are the main characters? Tell me a little bit about them. Who are the main characters? What can you tell me about Queen Esther? <laughs> well, there is, there, is, there is a bad guy, Haman. You're right. <laughs> Who wanted to kill the Jews? What else can you tell me about these four characters? Esther was beautiful. But she had a heart for the things of God and for the people of God. Made some hard decisions. What about Mordecai? Esther's uncle, 
Esther's relative, yes. Um, some people say cousin, some people say uncle. Devout Jew, characterized by conviction and extremely brave. And then King Ahasuerus, which of course deposed his original queen Vashti when she publicly disobeys him at his banquet. And contrary to Veggie Tales, the king did not ask his wife to make him a sandwich. Key verses of Esther, Esther 4.14, for if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. How's that for pressure, huh? And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. If you remember nothing else from Esther, remember for such a time as this. <clears throat> another passage Esther 4.16, she says to her relative, go gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my maids will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king. And even though it is against the law, if I perish, I perish. Brave woman. So it's unique among the books of the Bible. What word does not occur in the text? God. God is not mentioned in the text. But as you see from this passage and from Mordecai's behavior, right, the fact that they fast and they pray, they are godly people. It seems that Esther made possible the work of Nehemiah. Her marriage to the king must have given the Jews great privilege. It is possible to guess, it's impossible to guess, what might have happened to the Hebrew nation had there been no Esther. Except for her, Jerusalem might have never been rebuilt. There might have been a different story to tell to the future ages if the Hebrew nation had been wiped out of existence 500 years before it brought Christ into the world, it would have made all the difference in the world. No Hebrew nation, no Messiah, a lost world. So, if we were to look at a text between uh, uh, Mordecai and his relative Esther, it might look something like this. Hey, if you don't do anything, everybody's going to die. Okay, but if I perish, I perish. That's actually an actual copy of the text between the two. Uh, let's go to an outline, shall we, and be a little bit more serious. First, Ahasuerus holds a feast and selects Esther as his queen after disposing of Vashti in Esther chapter 1 and 2. Uh, by the way, archaeology did indeed find the palace at Susa, identified in 1852, uh, which had an inscription by Artaxerxes. In chapter 2, Esther becomes queen, and there, the wicked Haman. And by the way, what are we supposed to do every time the word Haman is pronounced? You're supposed to boo or hiss, exactly. Chapter 2, Haman plots to destroy the Jews, and Ahasuerus promotes Haman with his plot, and Esther must risk her life to intercede for the Jews, and Haman plans to kill Mordecai because he doesn't bow to him and give him obeisance but he also plans to kill all of the Jews. The wicked Haman. Thank you. Number three, Esther foils Haman's plan. Actually, God is the one who foils Haman's plan through Hester and Mordecai. And the remembrance of the king who couldn't sleep, Ahasuerus has Haman honor Mordecai instead. Mordecai is mortified, and he goes home, and he's worried about that. Esther intercedes for the Jews, and Haman is killed. And it's... a uh, not a pretty sight. Hung on a very high scaffold. Well, 
Ahasuerus promotes Mordecai, who delivers the Jews, of course, uh, cheers and uh, praise to God. And then the Feast of Purim in chapters 8 and 9 is established, uh, 8, 9, and 10. And then Esther is at Susa. And the story shows us how God's favor can cause civil law to be reversed. It also shows how God uses his faithful servants to influence and direct ungodly authority. What a comfort there is in this world which has many ungodly leaders. Not only must we pray for the leaders, but we must also pray for godly civil servants that God's plan can be done through them as it was with Esther. And then Mordecai is uh, exalted, of course. Now, there is a, uh, there is a little architect, uh, excuse me, an archaeologic uh, artifact that was found which specifically names Mordecai. Again, confirming the biblical text. All right, question. What are the practical life implications and principles we get from Esther? Again, it's not just a summary of facts. I hear lots of crickets, but... Yes, Deb? God puts us where we are for reasons. Excellent. What else? God has a sense of humor, yes. God does have a sense of humor. Say what? He protects his people. Amen to that. He makes a way. He is always victorious. Esther and Mordecai teach us about the role of integrity and courage. Integrity takes courage and is rewarded. God uses ordinary people and not relies upon their past. Why was Mordecai looking after Esther? She was what? She was an orphan. And this orphan girl, under the protection of God and her relative, was raised up to a high position of authority and had a lingering effect upon the nations. All right, let's go to Ezra. Ezra, returned from captivity, the rebuilding of the temple. We're going to ask the same question. What are the practical life implications and principles that we get from Ezra, our study in Ezra. The key verse in Ezra is going to be, uh, there are two, this one's not in the handouts. It's the uh, statement of King Artaxerxes. He orders all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, or teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you, whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God in heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons. Wow. Also, Ezra 9, 9. For we are slaves, yet in our bondage God has not forsaken us, but has extended loving kindness to us in the sight of the kings of Persia to give us reviving, to rise up the house of our God, to restore its ruins and give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Ezra begins a new role, a new story arc in Israel's history. From Genesis to Deuteronomy... God calls out Israel as a special nation, teaches his laws from Joshua to Chronicles. God gives Israel a land and a king, and Israel loses both when they consistently disobey God. But with Ezra and Esther and Nehemiah, God restores Israel from exile to their own land again. Now, we'll do a quick outline of uh, Ezra. Chapter 1 through 6, the rebuilding of the temple. Chapters 1 and 2, the remnant returns to Judah under the proclamation of Cyrus, and there's a register of those who return. And again, remember, 
The list of genealogies, the list of the people is not meaningless. It was set for a very important purpose. The reclamation of land and also the verification of people's titles, especially within the Levitical priesthood, it's critically important. Now, not everyone returns. The term all Israel is used of those who return, and there are 12 bulls, 12 goats that represented the 12 tribes. They were sacrificed. It appears as though the returning exiles of Judah in their homeward journey gathered in some other tribes, which is wonderful. And it's a wonderful truth that for us who are Gentiles, the promise is extended to all of the earth. Well, in chapter 3, Judah lays new temple foundations. And uh, this, by the way, this uh, stele that you see, this artifact, is the stele of Assyrian king Ashurbanipal in the British Museum. And it talks about the Jews who returned. Again, confirming the gospel, excuse me, the biblical story. In Ezra 4, Judah's adversaries stopped the temple work. But it's resumed in chapter 5. They're very uh, courageous. And it's completed in Ezra chapter 6. And then in Ezra 7 through 10, the purpose of Ezra's coming is seen. Ezra teaches the people the law. And the law is applied, just like we talked about earlier. The scriptures are not just for head knowledge. They're for practical, moral implication for our lives. Ezra has the people put away the foreign wives, which was part of their downfall. All right, so that's Ezra 9 and 10. Mixed marriages are removed. So the question then becomes, what practical implications and principles do we get from the study of Ezra? Please don't speak at once. It confuses me. Just stop. Amen. What else? He's sovereign over godless kings and administrations. By the way, if you ever notice with both Ezra and Nehemiah, everybody's got a hand in the work. Everybody. Goldsmiths, daughters, everybody's involved in God's work. And you can rejoice in the Lord, though your labor and progress may be sporadic. He's still worthy of our obedience. And, and this is an important point, and if you listen to the next uh, podcast, which Bryce is going to provide for us, you will see the principle that pursuing legal and legitimate protection as a citizen is not ungodly. Well, let's go to Nehemiah, one of my favorite books in all of Scripture. Love Nehemiah. We're going to ask the same question what are the practical life implications and principles we get from Nehemiah as we complete this race? What is Nehemiah about? Tell me. Rebuilding the wall. What happens during this time? Everything goes smoothly. He hires a few contractors. They come in. They put it up. They're cranes. And... No. There's some opposition, right? Any famous lines or verses that you remember? Any f famous phrases you remember from your study of Nehemiah? How about the sword and the trowel? 
That's an important phrase to remember with Nehemiah. After 70 years in exile, the Jews had returned home, rebuilt the temple. They were able to worship God in their own land, but the city still lay in ruin. And we find Nehemiah reestablishing God's people both physically and spiritually. In the first part of the book, Nehemiah restores Jerusalem in a physical sense. The wall is finished in how many days? 52 days. An amazing feat. We all live near uh, French Lick. And there's a couple of famous hotels up there. And one of them was built in a record time. Your homework for next week, when Andrew Walden teaches, come back with the fact of how quickly one of those hotels was built. Incredible time. But this wall was built in 52 days. Well, let's, what is Nehemiah's role in the Bible? Like the book of Esther and Ez, Ezra and Esther, Nehemiah tells us what happened after the exile to Babylon. Israel has been disciplined and now is being restored to her land and God and her God. Nehemiah chronicles God's covenant relationship with Israel and even provides a sweeping overview of the relationship in Nehemiah chapter 9. Well, let's go through a quick outline of Nehemiah. You have key verses. Nehemiah 5.19, remember from my good, O God, all that I've done for these people. Nehemiah 6.16, when all our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid, lost their self-confidence because they realized the work had been done with the help of our God. And Nehemiah 8.10, do not grieve, for the Lord is your strength. Um, I'm going to point out something. I, I encourage you, if you have a copy of God's Word with you, open it up, take a pen, and I'm not going to encourage you to add to God's Word, but I'd like you to point out, maybe make a little mark in the margins. In chapter 2 and verse 18, And I told them of the hand of my God that had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me. And they said, let us rise up and build. Mark that. Let us rise up and build. Down a few verses, 20. The God of heaven will make us prosper, and we his servants will arise and build. But to the enemies that opposed, he said, but you have no portion or right or claim in Jerusalem. I encourage you to mark that. In chapter 4, in verse 14, Nehemiah rose and said to the nobles and the officials and the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. And then later on in chapter 4, Verse 17 is the comment about the sword and the trowel. With one hand they were working to build, and one hand they were defending. Then in chapter 6, over in verse 8, <clears throat> Nehemiah is being tempted to disobey God and defile the temple. And he says to his enemy, No such things as you say have been done, for you are inventing them out of your own mind. Objectivity and truth are some of the weapons that God has given you to keep you from fear. Again, I would mark that passage. Well, let's finish our summary of Nehemiah, shall we? <clears throat> Nehemiah 1 through 7, the rebuilding of the wall. 
Nehemiah gets permission to rebuild Jerusalem and resources. The city wall construction begins in Nehemiah chapter 3. The gates are repaired in Nehemiah 4 through 6. The walls are built, and then you see uh, the wall is built despite enemies' plots in chapter 6, and then Nehemiah numbers the people. Here's a case where it is not ungodly to number the people. There's a very important provision here with regard to the protection of the city. And then in chapters 8 through 13, Nehemiah remembers the law, and Ezra is given the task of reading the law to the people. And this is wonderful. In Nehemiah 8.8, 8, it says, they read from the book of the law, making it clear and giving them meaning so that people could understand what was being said. For seven days, from early day until morning until midday, Ezra and his helpers opened the book of the law, read from the book of the law, explained the book of the law, so people understood that public reading and exposition of God's book brought a great wave of repentance among the people, a great revival, and a solemn covenant to keep the law as recorded in chapters 9 through 10. The Word of God is not just a collection of facts. It is designed to change your life, where you are disobedient to God. He delivers His Word to you and to me to change our lives, and if we don't, we are woefully disobedient and subject to his chastening. He's worthy of our trust. He's worthy of our obedience. God's word is practical and applicable. It was the finding of the book of the law that brought about Josiah's great reformation in 2 Kings 22. It was Martin Luther's finding of, the, of a Bible that led to the reformation and brought religious liberty to our modern world. The weakness of many present-day churches is the neglect of God's word that they profess to follow. The great needs of today's churches is simple, expository preaching with application. Israel reinstates the Feast of Booths. Israel confesses sin and rededicates to God. Dedication of the wall. There's a census of the Jews in the land, verses 11 through 12. The people worship on the wall with a great antiphonal response. And Nehemiah keeps aligning the people in chapter 13 to God's law. And he has some final reforms. Well, what are the practical implications and principles that we gain from Nehemiah? You only have three minutes to answer, okay? So make it quick. Make this count. Connor, what do you learn from Nehemiah? What do you learn from God's Word? Align ourselves with God's Word. I'm not too shy that I won't call on you directly and ask you a question. <laughs> Say it again. Amen. Amen. What else? God raises up His people to do His will. And again, like I said, Nehemiah, you read through the pieces of the wall. People are working right outside their front door. They have a, they're invested in it. They're invested in that part of the wall being built. And they have their daughters working. It doesn't matter if they're a goldsmith. They worked with gold. They worked with tiny jewelry. They're out there 
chucking stones around. What else? Stay focused. Don't get distracted by threats. God's word and his purposes and his promises will be completed. Well, every time I get up here and teach, the last few times you've witnessed miracles. I've finished again before 9.50. Wow. Next week, we're going to be covering the wisdom literature, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and what's the other one? Song of Solomon. Andrew Walden will be teaching us from that portion. I'm going to recommend that in preparation for this, you could read all of that. It's a pretty lengthy section. But I'm going to recommend something a little easier. Go to your study Bibles. Just read the introductory summaries of those sections, okay? Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Job, Song of Solomon. Just read the summaries. That'll help you because, again, it's a lot of material but it does have very practical application. Are you all out of breath after our race? Well, let's pray, and then we'll be joining up with the rest of God's people here and worshiping He who alone is worthy. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and praise You for this time. Oh, Lord, we readily confess that there are portions of your word that we have so often looked over and not seen the glorious things that you have for us from your word. And, oh, Lord, we do pray that you would make us like that scribe that Jesus talked about who became converted and found both old and new things out of the word. And Lord, we would pray that your word would not return void, but it would accomplish in us what you'd send it to do, that we would be quick to hear, quick to obey, quick to apply. Thank you for this time. Thank you for these people who love you, who desire to honor you. Lord, I pray that we would all rise up and build that we would not be frightened by any fear, but that we would put our hand to the work you've called us to do for your honor and glory. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the Davidic covenant fulfilled in Christ through whom we have right relationship with you and that you are building us into a holy temple of worship. We praise you again in his name.